One chance encounter can change a person's life forever, sometimes at no fault of their own. Just meeting the wrong person at the wrong time, and suddenly everything is turned upside down. Al is a cynical piano player in New York. One day, he decides to hitchhike to Hollywood to be with his girlfriend. A man in a convertible gives Al a ride, and suddenly his life will never be the same. And to make matters worse, he meets the mysterious Vera, and Vera turns out to be Al's worst nightmare. Today we have a film all about murder and blackmail. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days. My name is Jeff Kelly, and I'll be your host for the next uh, half hour or so. Now, on today's show, I'm going to talk about a film noir. And I've seen many films that are considered film noir, and it's one of those things that, well, when you see it, you know what it is. But I began to wonder, what does the term film noir actually mean? And I don't want to sound like I'm reading an eighth grade term paper, but I thought I'd start out with the definition by Merriam-Webster. They define a film noir as a type of crime film that features cynical, malevolent characters in a sleazy setting and an ominous atmosphere that is conveyed by shadowy photography and foreboding background music. Yeah, I, I guess so, but let's find out what everybody's favorite information source says. According to Wikipedia, it's a cinematic term used primarily to describe stylish Hollywood crime dramas, particularly those that emphasize cynical attitudes and motivations. That, I guess, is general enough, huh? The great 1941 film The Maltese Falcon is considered a film noir. And, don't get me wrong, I love The Maltese Falcon. It's one of my favorite films. But when I think of film noir, I think of a film more like Detour from 1945. The film features an innocent man who, because of some bizarre circumstances, ends up with a crap load of trouble. It also has a bad girl, a femme fatale, that he has to deal with. But we'll get more into the plot a little later. Detour was from 1945 and was made for very little money. How much? Well, I guess that's up for debate. Some claim it was made for around $20,000, but I guess the truth is it was closer to $100,000. It was directed by a man named Edgar G. Almer, a man who Peter Badanovich wrote, Nobody has ever made good pictures faster or for less money. And he also said, What he could do with nothing remains an object lesson for those directors, including myself, who complain about tight budgets and schedules. Almer made a film for a big studio, and it did really well. It was one of the biggest hits of the year, but his next film was for a studio on Poverty Row. No major studio would hire him, all because he fell in love. Edgar George Almer lived from 1904 to 1972. 
He was born in Olomouc, which is now the Czech Republic, and raised in Vienna. He worked as a set designer for the Max Reinhardt Theater and later in Germany, working as an assistant for F.W. Moreau. In 1926, he came along with Moreau to the USA. He would work for people like Fred Zimmerman, Eugene Shufton, Robert Siemack, and Billy Wilder. All these men would go on to have very successful careers, but not Almer. For him, it would always be a struggle. Yet, no matter who he was making films for, he never lost his enthusiasm for the work. His career would last 40 years as a director, and he made some of the most ingenious and disturbing B-movies in Hollywood history. The first feature he directed in North America was Damaged Lives from 1933. It was a low-budget exploitation film that exposed the horrors of venereal disease. But he followed that up by working for Universal in 1934. He made The Black Cat, a film starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It's a wonderfully dark film, very dark for 1934. I mean, it ends up with Karloff's character tied to an embalming rack, and Bella begins to skin him alive. Of course, we don't see the actual skinning, but we know it's happening. And it looked like Almer was on his way to a great Hollywood career, but it never happened. You see, he had an affair with a woman named Shirley Beatrice Kasler. Kasler was married to the independent producer Max Alexander, and Alexander was the nephew of Carl Lemley, the head of Universal Studios. Not a man you want to piss off. Shirley would divorce Alexander and marry Almer. But the result of the whole thing was that Almer was exiled from all the major Hollywood studios. According to Shirley, he was told by everyone he called that he would never work in Hollywood again. Almer gave up a lot for Shirley, but it must have been the real thing because the two remained together until his death in 1972. So he was forced to turn to Poverty Row and begin shooting B-films, and he would go on to be known as the Miracle Man of Poverty Row. Poverty Row is a slang term that refers to the small and mostly short-lived B-studios of the time. They had names like Tiffany, Mascot, Grand National, Monogram, Republic, and the Producers Releasing Corporation known as the PRC. Almer's first film was Thunder Over Texas from 1934 for Beacon Pictures, starring Gwyn Big Boy Williams. His wife Shirley would become his script supervisor from then on. He was known for shooting very quickly. When Peter Padanovich interviewed Almer late in his life, he asked him how he could shoot 80 setups in one day. Almer responded, ask my wife. 30 years later, film historian Tom Weaver asked Shirley Almer that same question, and she responded, how did we do 80 setups in a day? Well, that's because he would do these one-take things. He used the dolly like nobody ever used it before. He would make five-minute, 10-minute shots. He was always unhappy that they didn't make film reels longer. Thunder Over Texas was a Western, and that really wasn't something Almer was suited to. I've actually never seen it, but I heard it wasn't all that good. But he would go on to make films such as Moon Over Harlem in 1939, Tomorrow We Live from 1942, 
Island of Forgotten Sins from 1943, Strange Illusion from 1945, The Strange Woman from 1946, The Man from Planet X from 1951, The Daughter of Dr. Jekyll from 57, and The Amazing Transparent Man from 1960. When times were tough, he would even do things like making The Naked Venus, a 1955 film about a nudist colony. I've read, perhaps, that Ulmer's masterpiece was Ruthless from 1948. It's been called a low-rent Citizen Kane. I've seen it, and it's pretty good. But today, I believe, Ulmer is most famous for this film, Detour. But I know what you're going to hand me even before you open your mouths. You're going to tell me you don't believe my story of how Haskell died and give me that don't-make-me-laugh expression on your smug faces. The film is based on the book Detour, An Extraordinary Tale from 1939 by Martin Goldsmith. Goldsmith wrote the screenplay for Almer based on his own book. The film, however, has all the erotic passages removed as well as a reference to God. Now, I've personally never read the book, but according to Eddie Muller from Turner Classic Movies' Noir Alley, The book is parallel stories between two people, the male character and his girlfriend. In the film, the girlfriend story is pretty much cut and we focus just on the man's downfall. Now there's a bit of controversy over this film. In 1972, Almer said in an interview that the film was shot in six days for $20,000. But evidence suggests it was made for more like $100,000 and it was shot over three or four six-day weeks. Regardless, it had one of the highest profit margins, if not the highest, of any film noir listed in the National Film Registry. Now we get to the part of the show where I give you the main setup of the film, and I usually don't give a lot away, but this time, however, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the plot than I usually do. Hey, the film is like 80 years old, so... L. Roberts is a cynical piano player in New York City. His girlfriend is a nightclub singer in the same club he plays piano. She leaves to go to Hollywood. Eventually, he gets so bummed out that he takes off for California to be with her, but he doesn't have much money, so he hitchhikes. Money. You know what that is. It's the stuff you never have enough of. Little green things with George Washington's picture that men slave for commit crimes for, die for. It's the stuff that has caused more trouble in the world than anything else we ever invented, simply because there's too little of it. At least I had too little of it. So it was me for the thumb. He gets picked up by a man named Charles Haskell Jr. in a convertible. They begin to talk. Haskell tells Al about this beautiful woman he had picked up earlier in Louisiana. When he tried to make a move on her, she scratched him, so he threw her out of the car. I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world, a woman. She must have been Tarzan's mate. Looks like you lost the bob. Certainly wasn't a draw. You know, there ought to be a law against dames with claws. Yeah. I tossed her out of the car in her ear. Now as they drive, Haskell's constantly taking pills. And one night while Al is driving and Haskell is sleeping, it starts to rain with the top of the convertible down. Haskell doesn't wake up. Al pulls over to the side of the highway and opens the passenger door. Haskell falls out and hits his head against a rock. He's dead. 
Whether he was already dead of something like a heart attack or hitting his head killed him, we don't know. But Al panics. He thinks that he will be accused of killing this man for his car and money. I saw it once he was dead, and I was in for it. Who wouldn't believe he fell out of the car? Why, if Haskell came too, which of course he couldn't, even he would swear I conked him over the head for his dough. Yes, I was in for it. So instead, he decides to take his money, his clothes, and his identification. He starts going by the name Haskell. The following day, he picks up a hitchhiker, a beautiful but dirty woman named Vera. She sleeps for a while in the car, but eventually she accuses him of not being Haskell. She figures he killed Haskell and stole the car. Where did you leave his body? Where did you leave the owner of this car? You're not fooling anyone. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. You're out of your mind. That's my name, Charles Haskell. I can prove it. It's my driver's license. Save yourself the trouble, mister. Having Haskell's wallet only makes it worse. It just so happens I rode with Charlie Haskell all the way from Louisiana. See, it turns out that Vera is the woman that Haskell had given a ride to way back in Louisiana. Al does his best to convince her of the truth, but she refuses to believe him and begins to blackmail Al. That's the greatest cock and bull story I ever heard. So he fell out of his car. Say, who do you think you're talking to, a hick? Listen, mister, I've been around, and I know a wrong guy when I see one. What'd you do, kiss him with a wrench? Now, wait a minute. What I told you was true. You see, that's why I had to do it. You think I killed him. Well, the cops would have thought so, too. Yeah, well, maybe they still think so. What makes you so sure I'll shut up about this? Sure, I'm innocent. Give me a break, will you? Unless he does exactly what she says, she's going to turn him over to the police. They begin to call themselves Mr. and Mrs. Haskell with plans to sell the car and get the money. And then, while at the car dealership, Vera learns that the real Haskell has a rich, dying father, and there's a search underway to find his estranged son that he has not seen in a very long time. She wants Al to keep impersonating Haskell to inherit the estate. No. Yes. No, I won't do it. Yes, you will. You think I'm crazy? It's impossible, I tell you. No one could possibly get away with an act like that. Be wise to me in a minute. Don't be yellow. You look enough like him. The same coloring and the same build. See how his clothes fit you? No kidding, you almost had me fooled for a while. Oh, grow up, Vera. Don't you think a father knows his own son? And now it's time for me to take a break as we hear this strange man tell us about other film noir classics. Well, thanks, Jeff. Hi, Jeff here. Yeah, I've got to do my own middle section. I'm by myself again today. So I thought I'd list a few of my favorite film noirs. There's Double Indemnity, The Third Man, The Big Heat, Kiss Me Deadly, Touch of Evil, The Maltese Falcon, Gilda, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Night of the Hunter, White Heat, Sunset Boulevard, The Big Sleep, Notorious, Out of the Past, Laura, The Killing, Shadow of a Doubt, Journey into Fear, Sorry Wrong Number, The Asphalt Jungle, Dark Passage, Nightmare Alley, The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, Touch of Evil, Kiss of Death, Key Largo, The Blue Dahlia, The Lady from Shanghai, Ad Man Out, and DOA. Okay, I'm sure there are a lot more, but those are the ones that came to mind. A few of those might be stretching the term film noir a bit, but like I said, a lot of things fit under that large umbrella. Most of the films I just listed, I'll watch anytime they are on. 
I thought about doing a top 10 list, but one, it's impossible because I enjoy every one of these movies. And two, I, I never like top 10 lists. I mean, how can you compare The Third Man to The Maltese Falcon or Night of the Hunter to Out of the Past? You can't. They're all wonderful in their own way, and, and they should be number one on all the lists. One thing I thought of was that over the years, filmmakers are constantly attempting to rekindle the film noir gender. I'm not really convinced modern films work as film noirs. And there's been many, like Devil in the Blue Dress, The Usual Suspects, Body Heat, Dark City, Memento, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Blood Simple, The Last Seduction, Chinatown, and even Mulholland Drive. They're all wonderful films, but can we really call them film noir? I guess they are. But when I think of film noirs, I think of black and white, 1940s or 50s, with the hats and overcoats and all that, you know. But I'm probably wrong. Anyway, I'm going to get back to Jeff, and he's going to tell you more about Detour. You're not much of a talker, are you? My mother taught me never to speak to strangers. Oh, wise guy. So what? Okay, okay, don't get sore. It's trying to be sociable, that's all. I think my favorite scene in the film is actually the very first scene. You see, the story's all told in flashbacks. It begins with Al Roberts walking along the road, unshaven, tie loose, looking beat. He's picked up and dropped off at a diner. If someone said to me, show me an example of film noir, I would probably show them this scene. The way the diner's lit, the music that plays, the characters, the voiceover, all that. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. You can change the scenery. But sooner or later, you'll get a whiff of perfume where somebody will say a certain phrase or maybe hum something. Then you're licked again. I can't believe that you're in love with me. I used to love that song once. So did the customers back in the old Break at Dawn Club in New York. I can't remember a night when I didn't get at least three requests for it. Sue, she was always selling it too. Those were the days. Tom Neal plays Al Roberts, the broken, cynical piano player. Tom was alive from 1914 to 1972. He was an amateur boxer and actor best known for this film. He plays the part really good as the rough and hard-edged piano player. It's an odd character, one I find that I don't like, but at the same time do, I guess. I mean, I do find myself sympathizing with him when things start to go downhill. Now, the actor Tom Neal had a troubled life. That started, I guess, when he had an affair with the troubled and tragic actress Barbara Payton. At the time, Barbara was engaged to the actor Frankett Tone. And really, I could do a whole episode on Barbara Payton, the beautiful but tragic blonde. Although if I did, it would be a very sad story, and I might get too depressed. Anyway, Tom and Tone got into a fight over Peyton in her front yard. Tone was beaten badly with a smashed cheekbone, a broken nose, and a brain concussion. Tone and Peyton still married, but later divorced, Tone accusing her of adultery for having an affair with Tom Neal. Neal and Peyton made plans to get married, but that never happened although they had an on-again, off-again relationship. 
Wow, this whole thing sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Neil gave up acting in 1959 and went into gardening. He started his own landscaping business. He got married for a third time to a woman named Gail Bennett in 1960. But in 1965, Gail was found dead on their couch, partially covered by a blanket and with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Tom served six years in prison for her death. Now our female fatale is played by Anne Savage. She was born Beatrice Maxim Lyon and lived from 1921 to 2008. Again, she's best known for this film, though she was in more than 20 B-movies between 1943 and 1946. Her other films include Scared Stiff from 45, The Dark House, 46, Renegade Girl, also from 46, and Pure 31 from 1951. Later in her career, she did a lot of TV work. She's fantastic in this film as Vera, the cold and tough-talking beauty who drinks and smokes and constantly stamps dialogue with a razor-sharp edge. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. For two cents, I'd change my mind and turn you in. I don't like you. All right, all right, don't get sore. I'm not getting sore, but just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. But if you act wise, well, mister, you'll pop into jail so fast it'll give you the bends. I'm not arguing. Well, see that you don't. You know, as crooked as you look, I'd hate to see a fella as young as you wind up sniffing that perfume that Arizona hands out free to murderers. I'm not a murderer. Of course you're not. Asco knocked his own head off. He fell, that's how it happened, just like I told you. Sure, and then he made you a present of his belongings. I explained why oh, I had to do that. It. Doesn't make a difference one way or another. I'm not a mourner. I like Taskell even less than I liked you. And really, as I watched it, I should have hated her character, but I really didn't. There was something about her. I really wanted to know more about why she's the way she is. And instead of disliking her, I began to feel sorry for her. The poor kid probably had had a rough time of it. Who was she anyway? And why was she going to Los Angeles? And where'd she come from in the first place? The only thing I knew about it was her name. And there's a few scenes where she goes on these drunken ramblings. And I was hoping maybe a little would come through. But it doesn't. But she's the star of this film, even if she doesn't appear until a half hour in. Eddie Muller, the American writer who writes books about movies, particularly film noir, and like I said, is the host of Noir Alley and Turner Classic Movies, called her character the meanest woman in the history of movies. He also called her a hitchhiking harpy from hell. Really, those two characters are all that's worth mentioning. Most of the film is just these two. We see them in a car talking, we see them in a hotel room talking, we see them in a car talking, and so on and so on. There are a few others, the girlfriend Sue, played by Claudia Drake, and Edmund McDonald, who plays Charles Haskell Jr. The film is a sweet 67 minutes, and that's all you need. It seems every time I see a modern film noir, it's like two hours long. So I like this classic example of film noir, but does everybody? You know that's not going to be the case. It only gets a 77% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Audrey Kay gave it 4.5 out of 5 stars, and she wrote, This is indeed a masterwork, especially considering that it was done in only 6 days, according to Roger Ebert. 
Anne Savage's performance is so brilliant that I don't have to hesitate to call her character one of the best and memorable female fatales. So frighteningly alluring and sinister she is. The whole movie is so short and to the point that it's like to gulp a cup of water or to read in one sitting a short novel. I never thought, Audrey, about comparing a movie watch to drinking a cup of water, but I guess you're right. Although I think Ebert was wrong about this film being shot in six days. Scott S. gave it the full five stars and he wrote, A great noir film by Edgar Ulmer that does not play out like a traditional noir film. It moves like poetry as Al Roberts' journey to be reunited with his love is thwarted by a series of misfortunes. Al sums it up best as he talks about the saxophone player not playing a love song but a dirge. Should be at the top of everyone's noir list of films. I agree, Scott, with everything you said, but Jim B. might have a problem with you putting this on the top of your list. Because Jim B. didn't even give it a full star, just a half a star. And he wrote, Wow, what a waste of time. Terrible acting, terrible, implausible story, makes this 67 minutes seem more like a couple of hours. It's just dreadful as hell. This being on critics' lists prove what a joke those lists are. Rotten garbage. Stay away from this. Well, at least you don't have problems expressing yourself, Jim. You know, it's just a movie. Anyway, Julie N. gave it only a half star, and she wrote... Anyone recommending this film should be flogged with wet spaghetti and forced to watch this tripe over and over again for 72 hours. Wow, Julie, punishing a person for liking something that you don't like? Really? Is that what this land has come to? Are we not living in America? What is it about people having a problem with other people liking stuff they don't like? I don't get it. But as far as this film being implausible, like Jim B. mentioned, he is right, of course. First of all, Al is worried about being accused of Haskell's murder. It seems to me that if you just take the car, the man's ID, the man's clothes, the man's money to the police and explain what happened, you're free and clear. Why would you murder a man if you weren't going to rob him of all his possessions? But okay, Al made a bad decision. It happens. We've all made bad decisions. But what are the odds of running into the same girl the dead man had picked up sometime earlier? That's a huge and almost unbelievable coincidence. And for this, I'll again quote the great Eddie Muller, who said, Detour works brilliantly on its own terms. Great films create their own internal logic a.k.a. suspension of disbelief, which good filmmakers inject into their viewers almost subliminally. Now, if I had to nitpick a little, I would say it takes way too long to get to Anne Savage. Like I said, she's the best part of the flick. And I think you could have cut some of the earlier stuff out and maybe expanded her character a little. Maybe give us a hint of why she is the way she is. Or maybe it's better not knowing. I don't know. So now I'm going to talk about the end, and if you don't want this to be spoiled, skip the next few minutes. See, after not selling their car, they go back to the hotel, and they begin to argue. Vera gets drunk. She threatens to call the police, 
and eventually she runs into the bedroom with the phone, locking the door behind her. Well, dream it or not, you won't be dreaming when the law taps you on the shoulder. There's a cute little gas chamber waiting for you, Roberts. And I hear extradition to Arizona's a cinch. Where's that phone? Vera. Leave me alone. Vera. Here. I want a phone call, police. You see, the phone has a very long cord, and it gets wrapped around her neck. Al starts to pull the cord from the other side of the door, trying to break it. When he finally goes into the bedroom, he finds Vera dead, strangled by the cord. Yes, it's very unlikely. First of all, he was on the other side, where the cord probably goes into the wall. So logic would dictate you just have to pull the cord out of the wall. And apparently this wasn't part of the original story. Edgar G. Almer thought of this one day while driving to the studio. The world is full of skeptics. I know. I'm one myself. In the Haskell business, how many of you would believe he fell out of the car? And now, after killing Vera without really meaning to do it, how many of you would believe it wasn't premeditated? In a jury room, every last man of you would go down shouting that she had me over a barrel and my only out was force. And there's a final scene to this film in which Al is just walking by himself down the street and he's put into the back of the police car. This was added because in those days, the motion picture production code did not allow murderers to get away with their crimes. Now, as far as the music, I didn't find anything really memorable about it. And maybe that's the point. Anyway, it was done by a man named Leo Erdotti, E-R-D-O-D-Y. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. He was an American film composer who wrote the music for a handful of movies in the 1940s, including a couple other Almer films. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score for the 1944 film Minstrel Man. Now, as far as Almer, he died in 1972 of a stroke. He was only 68. Since his death, people have been rediscovering his films. In 1992, Detour was selected for the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Introducing the screen's newest, hottest, fastest undercover operator. You name it, he can handle it. Killers. Foreign agents. Master criminals, blondes, brunettes, redheads, the screen's most luscious, curvaceous, beautiful assassins. Are you a natural redhead? You'll have to take my word for it. Secret Agent Super Dragon. Starring Ray Danton as the cool, cool spy. I thought you were 10 feet under, Brian. Well, you were wrong. Secret Agent Super Dragon. The man who makes the other secret agents look like softies. He's like no other man you ever met or imagined before. Secret Agent Super Dragon. Technicolor. A little bit before I go. This film is available everywhere since it's in the public domain. Though I found a version on Amazon Prime that was just 
awful. It was colorized. Normally, I don't have that big of a problem with colorization, but this film should never be colorized, and it needs to be seen in its glorious black and white. But this colorized version, I can safely say, was the worst colorization I've ever seen. The colors look terrible, and whenever light hits a character in a dark scene, it has this awful, unnatural yellow or golden glow. I literally had to turn it off. Now you can find this film on a lot of the free streaming services like Tubi. Of course, you have to watch it with commercials. But again, it's all over YouTube because it's in the public domain. Next week, we're going to go back to a Rift film. This time, I, along with Nancy, will be talking about the 1966 classic film, Secret Agent Double Dragon. I'll be talking about the history of this cinema classic, while Nancy will talk all about the MST3K version. And that'll be my last show for the year. I'm taking December off, but have no fear, Nancy will be taking over for the month. It's always a treat for me to hear what Nancy, and sometimes Gordon, has to say about a film. Now listen up, we have a Facebook page. We need to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Feel free to join us. We also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. Although the way things are going, who knows how long Twitter's going to be around, right? And for an update, I'm up to 42 followers. So, hey, hey! Now, you know, I'm always looking for film suggestions. January is right around the corner, and I'll be looking for some strange and unusual films to talk about. One reason I started this show was to force myself into watching films I wouldn't normally see. Now, you can reach me at my email address. It's daysofcelluloid, all being one word, at gmail.com. You can even email me just to say hi. I'm a friendly guy, trust me. Hey, and if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, you would make me a very happy person. Thanks for checking this out. I'll be back next Monday with Nancy. Stay healthy, stay warm. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen.